In the corporate world today, mission and vision statements are considered key to the success of any business. Many churches have come to be uh, to believe the same about the church. If you were to peruse the websites of many local churches, you'll find something akin to a mission or a vision statement. Now, it's, it's not bad to have a mission or a vision statement. I would contend, though, that the church has already received hers, and there is no need to improve upon it. So if a church does adopt a mission statement or a vision statement, it needs to have these key elements in it. And I was actually just looking at Sovereign Joy's vision statement uh, today, and all of these key elements are represented that we're going to be looking at today are represented in Sovereign Joy's vision statement. The, vi- the mission of the body of Christ is the Great Commission. And it's important from time to time for us to stop and to focus anew on this great mission. It's just like a a football team. From time to time, they'll stop and they'll say, let's go back to the basics. We're going to go back and we're we're going to drill the basics into you. And in the same way, it's good for the church from time to time to step back and say, what is our mission as a church? So today, we're going to consider the Great Commission from Matthew's Gospel. And we will consider it in three parts. First, we'll consider that all authority has been given to Christ. Second, we'll consider the different aspects of making disciples, going, baptizing, and teaching. And then finally, we will take uh, one, one more time this year to consider the fact that God is with us. God is with us. In Matthew chapter 18, uh, 28, starting in verse 18, we read, And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. The church, commissioned with the Great Commission, must fulfill it with boldness. And why do I start there? Because oftentimes whenever we think about the Great Commission, we think about evangelism. We think about the mission, as we've already stated, the mission of the church. So when we think about the Great Commission, we think about the, the fulfilling of the Great Commission. That Great Commission must be filled with boldness. But why? Why must it be fulfilled with boldness? This commission has behind it all of the authority of heaven and earth. It has divine authority. It has, it's, it's a task that has been demanded of us by a divine authority, and its message bears A divine seal. As we go weekly into our context, our homes, our workplaces, the the marketplace, and our neighborhoods, we carry with us the King's message. As we go weekly into our context, when when a mother instructs her children... She must recall with great urgency the divine message that she's been given to imprint on those young hearts. As we take a coffee break or a lunch break at work, we must remember that Christ's authority is over the whole earth, even our workplace. Our co-workers sorely need to be compelled by His gospel to submit to His 
rightful authority in this life. Our neighbors, both in the marketplace and on our, in our neighborhoods, should readily see the gospel of Jesus Christ adorned by our character, our actions, and most essentially, our conversations. After all, the gospel, this is our message. <clears throat> it is, it's not just our message though. It is the king's message. And we are his ambassadors as we sojourn in our world today. How was the, earthly ch- the early church taught to adorn the gospel of Christ? The, the doctrine of the apostles even. They were called to have Christian character in everything that they did. Slaves were encouraged to have a strong Christian work ethic so that their character would support the Great Commission in the workplace and not distract from it. In Titus chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, what does Paul tell Titus? He says, Urge bond slaves to be subject to their own masters in everything, to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, not showing, uh, but showing all faith so that they will adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior, in every respect. In every respect. So when we're out and we're in, our, in the workplace, yes, the gospel needs to be on our lips, but what are we doing to adorn that gospel with our behavior? Wives, likewise, were encouraged to adorn themselves with godly character. If you look at the book of First Peter, the book of First Peter is all about the new birth. Starting in First Peter chapter 1, verses 3-6, through 6, we read about this new birth that has taken place in the life of the Christian, through which we have a new relationship with believers and with our God in heaven. And throughout the, uh, the first chapter, we see this new relationship that we have with the Father in heaven and this new relationship that we have with believers. And then you get to, verse, uh, to, to chapter 2. And in chapter 2, we see the new relationship that we have with unbelieving, uh, unbelieving the unbelieving Jews, with uh, the un, uh, unbelieving magistrates, the unbelieving uh, masters. And then there's a parenthetical that, that Peter throws in there between that and his next group of unbelievers that we have relationships with. And he talks about Christ. Uh, relationship with the unbelieving world, how he willingly subjected himself to suffering, not reviling in return. And then, after that parenthetical, pointing us to Christ as our supreme example of how to live in this unbelieving world, he then turns to wives of unbelieving husbands. And he says to the wives in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse, starting in verse 3, he says, your adornment must be it must not be merely external, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry or putting on dresses, but let it be hidden. Uh, let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. For in this way, 
In former times, the holy women also who hoped in, hoped in God used to adorn themselves being submissive to their own husbands. Rather than seeking to win their unbelieving husbands with the latest fashions and jewelry, they were to let the hidden person of the heart be exposed, but with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit. Peter, in essence, wants women to understand that men are not won by their wives' external beauty. Ungodly husbands are won to Christ by the adorning of godly character in support of the gospel that has been preached. Peter conveys as much in the preceding two verses of 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3 verses 1 and 2. He says, in the same way you wives, in the same way as what? In the same way as, as Christ. It's Christ who, who did not revile in return. In the same way, you wives be submissive to your own husbands so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. Everything the Christian does either supports or detracts from the Great Commission. Do we love our coworkers as we have been called to love all men? Do we hope to see them saved? Then we must adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior, through a godly work ethic. Do we love our unbelieving family members? Do we hope to see them saved? then we must adorn the gospel of Christ in our love and respect for them in all of our conversations. We must adorn the gospel of Jesus for the sake, for their sake, but also out of a sense of its authority in our own lives. Again, this gospel that we have been given is the very message of the King. It comes with His authority upon the hearts of the hearers, but it should also fall with an authority upon our own hearts. If it bears no authority upon the church, how will, it, how will the lost ever hear? We can wish all day long that they, will, that they would just happen to the pew by the sheer will of God. But we know that that is not at all how God accomplishes His will. The Gospel is God's power unto salvation. According to Romans chapter 1, verse 16, they must be compelled to submit to godly discipleship by the Gospel's power. Or we should expect that they will never have the slightest desire of discipleship. The lost must see their great need of Christ and of His church if they're to be brought into the church through baptism and taught to observe all that Christ commanded. That's one of the goals of preaching the Word, to help regular church members to be so immersed in the Word that they can all explain, bare minimum, a person's need for discipleship in Christ. 
the average church member can't explain that, then the local church has failed them. That's why in most Reformed churches that you'll go to, you don't see a, a big invitation happening at the end where everybody's told to bow their head and close their eyes and, and the lights are dimmed and the music is playing and, you know, I see that hand, I see that hand. No. No, if, you, if, if the Holy Spirit's working on you, you don't need all that psychological manipulation, all that emotionalism. If you have questions... The person next to you, having been sitting under the Word of God week in and week out, year upon year, should be able to answer those questions just as, just as well as the pastor. Maybe not just as well. They don't have all the theological training the pastor has, but, but they should be able to answer bare minimum issues regarding the faith. Matthew goes on, to write Jesus' words here in the Great Commission. Jesus says to His disciples in Matthew chapter 28, verse 19, Going therefore make disciples of all the nations. This great authority having been given to Christ, the church is now commissioned. We are commissioned to make disciples of all nations. In the Matthew 28 account of the Great Commission, there are several participles providing subpoints to the main point. The main verb is make disciples. The participles are going, baptizing, and teaching. Each of these participles is given in support of the main verb. So it could be said, and has been said that the main verb gives us our mission and the participles give us the plan of attack. Christ in His incarnation accomplished several pivotal goals in the church. When Christ came to this world and took on human flesh, He removed the enmity that existed between circumcised believers and their Gentile counterparts. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 14 through 16, we read, For he himself is our peace, who made both groups, Gentiles and Jews, into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he, may, he might make the two into one new man thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, by it having put away, uh, having put to death the enmity. In His incarnation, He has removed the sense of geographical, earthly worship and declared that We who worship Him must worship Him instead in spirit and in truth. We see this in John chapter 4, verses 21 through 24, whenever He talked to the woman at the well and He told her that uh, the, the day is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. They won't worship on this mountain or on that mountain, but they will worship rather in spirit and in truth, those geographical boundaries have now been done away with. Christ has done away with it. Christ also broke apart 
uh, these geographical boundaries, the boundaries of the kingdom of God, mobilizing the church to go forth into all nations. However, he did so through interesting means. We read throughout the book of Acts how the church was scattered through persecution in order that the gospel might be spread among the Gentiles. We're told that at the, uh, the, the stoning of Stephen, that they were scattered, the, 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 the people of the way, that they were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, all except for the apostles. So even through such means as persecution, God moved His people out into the world. He mobilized the gospel. He did away with the boundaries so that it wasn't just for those who lived within Israel. He did away with the enmity that existed between ethnicities so that it wasn't just for the people who were born of, of, the, of the bloodline of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he also pushed the church out through persecution into the world so that the gospel would go out. At the stoning, the stoning of Stephen, a great persecution broke out and the church was scattered. The church was scattered such that by the time that Paul wrote to Colossae from prison, he declared that the gospel had already gone out into all the known world. In Colossians chapter 1, verses 5 and 6, we're told, Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, this is what, what he's thanking God for, because of the hope that is laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you just as in all the world also it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing. As the gospel went out, we also need to recognize that support was soon needed. As people were brought into the church fulfilling the, great, the, fulfilling the, the gospel on a, a micro level, finances were needed for the sending of missionaries and the support of struggling churches. Missionaries like Paul, Barnabas, John Mark, Titus, and Timothy needed the support as they uh, needed to be supported as they took the gospel to the ends of the known world in a prison letter paul commends the church at philippi for their financial support of him he says now you philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel when i departed from macedonia no church shared with me concerning giving and receiving but you only for even in Thessalonica you sent aid once and again for my, my necessities. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. Though Paul was a self-sufficient tradesman and had time to apply his trade as well as preach the gospel, having no wife or, or family for which to provide, he still required financial support from time to time, especially while in prison. Providing this kind of support is a privilege for local churches. Local churches who have the abilities to support missions should count it all joy to do so. It should be seen as fruit that abounds to the account 
of local churches. This blessing, though, this fruit, is not something that can be bought. Churches do not earn the favor or the blessing of God through unwise stewardship. There are times in the lives of local churches in which they are unable to provide financial support for missions. Not only is it okay to go through such seasons, but sometimes it's even biblical. Even the church at Philippi, who uh, Paul is praising for their generosity in this text, went through such a season, such a season, a season in which they were unable to meet his need. He tells them in, uh, chap- in verse 10 of the same passage, But I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. So there was a season in the life of the church at Philippi where they were unable to give to these missionary journeys that Paul was on. A natural outworking then of fulfilling the Great Commission in the, uh, in the immediate context of the church, of the local church, is the increase of opportunity to support the fulfilling of the Great Commission in greater contexts. So the way that I've kind of described it to our church and Sovereign Grace in San Angelo is that we start by supporting the ministry locally. And once we're fully supported locally, then we can start looking abroad and we can start to, to look at ways that we can, we can uh, support church planting. We can support seminaries, which are training up men for the future ministry. We can support uh, foreign missions. But we have to start in our local context. And as the Lord gives ability through the increase of the local church, the local church is to be increasingly focused on the work of the universal church. As we focus on the spread of the kingdom abroad, we will then be encouraged to take part in the spread of the kingdom in our context as well. So it's, it's kind of a cycle where we see the, the Great Commission being fulfilled elsewhere and we're encouraged then to fulfill it also anew in our own context. We're told also of baptizing in the, the second part of verse 19, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Well, why baptism? For many Christians today, baptism has no place in the discussion of evangelism. That's because many Christians do not believe evangelism and discipleship to be intrinsically linked. In fact, to consider their practice, many Christians today do not even consider discipleship and baptism to be intrinsically linked. In fact, but when Christ commissioned his church to make disciples, baptism was the first step that he listed in which these new disciples were to take part. The whole of the Great Commission is a corporate effort. It's it's an effort of the corporate church, right? The church goes, the church baptizes, and the church teaches. But it also has an individual aspect, After the church goes and makes a new disciple, that disciple submits to baptism. That's the disciple's first act. And then submits to the teaching of the church. 
For the new disciple, then, there are two aspects to discipleship. The one-time submission to baptism and the ongoing submission to teaching. Both of these uh, two aspects of discipleship require a common denominator, the local church. The local church is essential for the carrying out of the Great Commission. And that's key. The local church is essential for the carrying out of the Great Commission. There's no such thing as a rogue evangelist. There is no sense in which baptism and teaching in the New Testament was expected to occur outside the authority of local congregations. The very nature and structure of the New Testament testifies to this fact. All but three of the epistles were written either to local churches or to be circulated among local churches. The other three epistles were written to church leaders for the benefit of local churches. Revelation itself was also written for, to seven specific local churches. The other five books of the New Testament are the Gospels and Acts, in which much instruction is given for a godly ordering of local churches. Earl Blackburn writes in his book, in his uh, kind of pamphlet, Denominations or Associations, the New Testament is a church book, a book for Christians in the context of a local church. The New Testament knows nothing of a churchless Christianity. There can be no teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, or no continuing in the apostles' doctrine, fellowship, and the breaking of bread and prayers, unless a Christian is a member of a visible body of Jesus Christ. Baptism is an, an absolutely necessary part of Christian discipleship because church membership is an absolutely necessary part of Christian discipleship. If we are to be discipled by Christ, it will occur within the body of Christ. The first step in Christian discipleship and the first step in church membership are the same. Baptism. We're told in Nine Marks of a Healthy Church by Mark Dever, he writes, Baptism is what the Bible presents as the first step for the Christian. And the assumption of the New Testament is that all Christians have been baptized. Baptism as a public admission of a person into the church accomplishes two things. The first thing that it accomplishes is to recognize the disciple, the disciple's willing submission to the authority of the church in his or her life. This is a countercultural concept, especially in America. We don't like to think of any human being as having authority over us. However, the Bible is very clear that we are to subject ourselves to one another in Christ. According to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21. When I submit myself to a local church through baptism, I am declaring my desire to be submitted to that local congregation for admonition, 
teaching, exhortation, rebuke, edification, and training in righteousness. This willing submission assumes a second desired end. It assumes that a church desires to corporately come alongside the new disciple and provide him or her with godly admonition, teaching, exhortation, rebuke, edification, and training in righteousness. For those who have left everything to follow Christ, it means even more. According to Mark chapter 10, verse 30, it means that the church will provide him or her with a hundred time times as much now in the present age, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms. This submission then is necessary, necessarily reciprocal. And baptism is the right through which we enter this relationship of mutual submission. J. Aspinwall Hodge, the son of uh, Charles Hodge, wrote in the system of theology contained in the Westminster Shorter Catechism, baptism ratifies our union with those who are saved by Christ, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 13 through 26. It is therefore uh, often called the rite of initiation into the Christian church. As new disciples are added to the church's number through baptism, they are to be baptized in a Trinitarian formula. Why do we baptize in the triune name? We baptize in the name of our triune God to signify baptism in His authority. In His authority. Remember that we go forth in Christ's authority to make disciples. Christ further commands that we baptize in the authority of or the name of the triune God. He commands that we, that we do so for any who enter into discipleship with Him. Baptism being the entrance point into the church and baptism being divinely commanded of all who enter into the discipleship of Christ in the authority of the triune name, all who would come to Christ as Lord must also submit themselves to the local church through baptism. As such, it is proper to follow the apostles' footsteps in our discussion of baptism. Just as they preached baptism as part of their evangelistic message, and I would point you to Acts chapter 2, verse 38, Acts chapter 10, verse 48, and Acts chapter 22, verse 16. Just as they said, repent and be baptized, we as a church ought to preach the same today. If we are not baptizing, we are not making disciples. And if we are not making disciples, we are not being faithful to our King. Let us then reconsider the importance of baptism for the work of evangelism. Finally, in verse 20, we read, teaching them to observe everything whatsoever I commanded you. What is a disciple? Discipleship means learning. That's what the term in the Greek means, to learn. Christian disciples are first and foremost disciples of Christ. They will have to answer directly to Him 
on the day of judgment. However, they will not be the only ones answering for their souls. The author of the, of the epistle to the Hebrews was very clear that teachers too will have to give an account for every soul they have been commissioned to teach. We're told in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. This was the practice of the early church. They gave themselves regularly to the teachings of the apostles. When Christ makes disciples, He does not leave them as orphans. He gives them the Holy Spirit as a helper, a comforter, an advocate. When Christ ascended to the right hand of the Father, He sent the Spirit to guide us in all truth, according to John chapter 14 and John chapter 16. And the same Spirit gives gifts to the church that are necessary for her unity in the faith. I would encourage you to go and read Ephesians chapter 4. We won't go there today for lack of time, but in Ephesians chapter 4, it's made clear that, that uh, godly men throughout the church age have been given to the church for their, their unity, for their building up in the unity of the faith to keep them united in Christ. If a disciple is one who learns, we need to ask the question though, what is a disciple of Christ? What kind of disciples are we seeking to make? A disciple of Christ is one who submits to the teachings of Christ in his present teaching ministry. And Christ presently teaches through the teachers that He has given the church through His Spirit. But what are disciples to be taught? Disciples are those who are to be taught to obey all that Christ commanded. They are not mere converts left to their own devices with no expectation of growth in holiness. That's why I think it's such a terrible thing for somebody to go out on the street and say, I'm not here to get you to join a church. I understand what's being said there, but what we need to recognize is that yes, we are here to get you to join a church. We're here to make you a disciple, not a mere convert, but a disciple of Jesus Christ. They are not mere converts left to their own devices with no expectation of growth and holiness. They are meant to be brought into the church and taught the statutes of Christ. It is through the preaching and teaching ministry of the church then that we come under subjection to Christ. Outside the auspices of the local church, growth and godliness is not to be expected. In Their book, Life in the Father's House, Wayne Mack and Dave Swavely write, The bottom line is that God has designed the church to be the context in which we move from sinfulness to holiness. Attempting to grow in Christ outside of the church is like trying to learn to swim without ever getting into the pool. Consider then what a horrible thing it is to assure someone of his or her salvation outside the regular attendance to the preaching and teaching of the church. 
To offer a person such assurance is like assuring a blind man that he's in no danger as he walks off of a 500-foot cliff. Such assurance would be terribly unloving. Yet this type of assurance is offered regularly by well-meaning Christians in the name of evangelism. Disciples, then, are to be taught two main things. According to the Baptist Catechism of 1693, what man ought to believe concerning God and what duty God requireth of man. This means that the disciple is to be trained thoroughly, both in right doctrine and in right practice. Orthodoxy and orthopraxy. What we are to believe what God has said about himself and At the same time, walk in accordance with that belief. The Word of God has, the Word of God has uh, given us sufficient testimony to both. As such, the role of the church in the life of the new disciple is to be one of pointing him or her to the Word of God. This is not just the job of the pastor in the pulpit, though. Other Christians are to be committed to the task of training up the new disciple in what we ought to believe concerning God and what he requires of us. The pastor cannot be everywhere at once. The whole church, the whole church, you are required for the teaching of new disciples. A further requirement for disciples is that they be teachable. After all, what is, uh, that is what a new disciple is. We've already established. A learner. The moment a disciple ceases to learn in accordance with Christ's ordained means, he ceases to be a disciple of Christ. We must labor then to remain teachable at every turn of our Christian lives. Finally, in verse 20, the end of verse 20, we're told, And behold, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. And I won't belabor this point. I know we're short on time. Many churches around this time of year preach on the incarnation of Christ. I don't know what Jay preached on last week. We, we looked at uh, John 1 at our church. The fact that Christ was Emmanuel, God with us, That he was the word become flesh who tabernacled among us. A sovereign joy both corporately and individually seeks to fulfill the great commission through sharing with the lost in your own lives. Supporting the work of your local church with your time, talents, and money. Supporting church planning and missions. Supporting the education of new pastors, missionaries, and Bible translators so that the gospel can go forth beyond your immediate context. As Sovereign Joy commits to this task, understand that Christ has promised that He will continue to be with His church. Understand that He is with you in all power and authority, both in heaven and on earth. Through the church, He remains God with us. The Word become flesh. Go forth then in boldness. Be a church on mission. Going, baptizing, and teaching. Make disciples. Let us go, Lord, in prayer. Heavenly Father, 
I do pray that you would be with this church. I'm thankful for Sovereign Joy and for everything that Sovereign Joy has meant for my family, for me, for Jennifer, for Nora, and the lasting effects of the discipleship that we received here, the, 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 that it will have on generations of our family. I pray, Father, that that would be true of all the other families that are represented here today, that they would truly be beneficiaries of the labors of the elders and the deacons of this church. I pray, Father, that each and every person here, as they sit back and they consider the task that has been given to the church of fulfilling the Great Commission, and they consider their own talents and their own abilities, that they would, in their own small way, come alongside their pastor and that they would help in the fulfillment of the Great Commission, whatever that may mean for them, whether it's providing uh, time, whether it's providing uh, money, whether it's providing talents, whatever it may be. I pray, Father, that Sovereign Joy, as a church, would flourish both doctrinally and financially so that they can then support the mission, uh, foreign missions, that they can support uh, seminaries as they are being even established in this day in their own backyard, for the training up of, of men, for the future service of the church. I pray, Father, that you would give them a, a heart toward their local mission that they have here in North Fort Worth, and that you would give them a heart for foreign missions, that you would give them a heart for the local church and a heart for the church universal. I thank you, God, for sovereign joy, for what it means for my life, for what it means for my wife, and for what it means for all of these families here. And I just pray, Father, that you would be with them. I thank you for your word. I pray, Father, that you, you would use it greatly for the discipleship of many here in the DFW area. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.